Well, those of you who have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you again to turn in it uh, to the book of Acts this morning. Acts chapter 17. Of course, you can follow along in the insert that's found in your bulletin if you uh, desire. We continue this morning in our study of this early church history, which is the book of Acts. And our shadowing, we might call it, of the Apostle Paul as he travels through the ancient world and makes his way through uh, the ancient world, proclaiming that Jesus, this Jesus that you heard about his death, you heard about his resurrection, he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. You need to repent and you need to believe in him. And last week we followed the Apostle Paul uh, you remember those of you who were here, we followed him to the city of Athens, this uh, cultural center, a city that was steeped in religion and, and philosophy and, and curiosity and fascination with, with new ideas. These realities of the city of Athens, they gave Paul the opportunity to speak. To speak in a way that probably none of us will ever have the opportunity to speak. In a very public manner to some of the culturally elite of his day. And it was an event that reminded us, as I stated last week, that God has spoken. And so now we need to learn how to speak. And I know that some of our community groups have uh, continued that conversation and wrestled with what does that look like? Well, today I want to help us further to think about what does that look like. And of course, this is a huge subject. What it looks like to speak to our culture. What it looks like to, as the sermon title states, to engage Athens. I know that many of you are already wrestling with this as we uh, look at uh, the reason for God in our discipleship hour. You're having these kinds of conversations. I trust that the rest of the book of Acts, we've still got quite a ways to go, will continue to flesh out what it looks like to learn how to speak God's truth. But I think this morning, and I thought this week as I wrestled with whether to move on to chapter 18, as is our custom, to just work our way through the book, or to camp out a little bit on chapter 17. And I want to be careful. I wanted to be careful because I didn't want to say more than what is said here. I didn't want to add to God's Word. But I do think that Paul has more to teach us. That the Holy Spirit has more to say to us as we dig a little deeper, specifically into Paul's time in Athens. And so let's consider once again God's Word beginning at verse 16 of chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through the end of the chapter. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked. Provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and they said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And of all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. 
And so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. It is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, Now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst But some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Dorothy once famously said, we're not in Kansas anymore. Paul, I think, certainly felt that as he walked into the city of Athens People of God, the Holy Spirit wants to remind us of that very same fact today. If you ask five different Seattleites on the streets of Seattle, what or who is God? You're likely to get different answers. That is, even if you get an answer at all. That is, if you get an acknowledgement that there is such a being that we can call God. Well, I don't have to tell you smart people that our world is constantly changing. That through our technology, we are more prideful creatures than maybe we have ever been. That through the internet, our world has shrunk and it continues to shrink and and once distant and unknown ways of rebelling against the Creator are now just part of our landscape. So now if you follow up the question of who is God on the streets of Seattle with the statement, I just want to tell you that God loves you. That may mean something completely different than you intended for it to mean. It certainly means something completely different than if you said God loves you to someone in Birmingham, Alabama 50 years ago. See, many people just don't have in our world and in our culture, 
in the spheres of our lives, they just don't have the context, they don't have the categories to be able to receive our words correctly. And yet the message that God loves them is true, and the gospel behind that, that informs that message, needs to be conveyed. It's just a matter of how do we get there? I'm going to be up front with you this morning. This is a message directed at the church. Directed at you who are followers of the Lord Jesus. That's okay. That's good because most of you are the church. But quite possibly there's someone in here who doesn't know the Lord Jesus. And yet even for you, First of all, we're glad that you're here. But secondly, this is a message for you too. Because even as we have this sort of in-house discussion, an in-house talk about communicating the good news of what Jesus has done effectively, we want you to hear the story. We want you to know the news. For what Paul proclaimed to those in Athens long ago is still true today. That the God who made you, the God who gives every breath in your lungs has come near to you in your brokenness and in your sin. He has come near to you in the historical person of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. And of course, we're about to celebrate the birth of this baby born under extraordinary circumstances. A man who grew and lives an extraordinary, perfect life and died a tragic death, but one that wasn't just tragic, that was a sacrifice, a substitute for you, and yet was raised in power, proven power. That as Paul said, we'll return one day and we'll require that all men give account. The Jesus Paul proclaimed, the repentance Paul called for, is the same we call you to this morning. Repent and believe in the one God has sent. Well, as we turn to this passage as a church and and dig a little deeper than we did last week. We kind of flew over this last week at the 30,000 foot level. I want to dig a little deeper. And I want us to see three encouragements from this interaction in Athens. And before I get there, kids, I know you're ready, poised for that first encouragement. It's worth saying, just as a matter of understanding the Scriptures, that some think that Paul's interaction in Athens is not worth modeling. You know, Paul will later say to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 2 that he decided to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And they interpret that as somehow Paul thinks that what he did in Athens was a mistake. He should have just preached Christ and Him crucified rather than quoting the poets and going back to the beginning Well, I don't think that's the case, and many don't think that's the case. And let me just give you two reasons. Some think that's the case because Paul has such a meager response. You know, the masses don't come weeping and and, uh, repenting. But you know as well as I know that Paul knows that it's his job to plant. God's job is the rest. 
We can get the head thinking differently, but only God can truly change the heart. The results are in God's hand, and I think Paul knew that. And so I don't think the meager response that Paul gets in Athens is any indication of of that he's ashamed of this, or we shouldn't emulate this. The other thing to keep in mind is that this sermon, or discourse, if you want to call it, in Acts 17 in Athens, what we have is likely Luke's sermon notes. I mean, they're good sermon notes. They're Holy Spirit-inspired sermon notes. But it's likely that Paul's sermon in his discourse was much, much longer, much more comprehensive. Paul likely fleshed out much more preaching Christ and Him crucified even before He got to the resurrection. No, people of God, I think the Lord has given us this. I think Luke has preserved Acts 17 in Athens for us to learn. For us to wrestle with how to communicate the message, the unchanging message of grace to a constantly changing world. And so let's dig in with a couple encouragements from Athens. The first one I want us to think about is this. Very simple. Pray for the grace to be compassionately passionate. Pray for the grace to be compassionately passionate. One of the first things I think Paul shows us in Acts 17 is the state of his own heart. Those of you who have been here who kind of know the flow of the story, Paul is on the run when he arrives in Athens. He's running from a mob that has formed in Thessalonica, angry at his words that Jesus was the Christ, ran him out of town, followed him to the little outpost of Berea, and ran him out of Berea. And so Paul has taken flight to Athens to wait there. A respite of sorts. A breather of sorts. In what was no doubt a very stressful and trying time for the Apostle. But it's clear that Paul didn't just saunter in this city to to check out. Paul walked into that city with a heart burdened for the souls of men and burning for the glory of God. Do you see that? Paul was burdened for the souls of men and burning for the glory of God. Maybe at first he thought, oh, Athens, heard there's great architecture there, great structure, great culture. Maybe I'll check it out. Maybe not. Either way, it was clear right off the bat that Paul couldn't just tune things out when he got into this city. He stood there amidst all of of these idols. Thousands of idols. Over 30,000 idols, it's thought in the city of Athens. He stood there and he grieved. This isn't how it should be. Something has to be said. Something has to be done. See, Paul had a heart. A passion for God's glory. Compassion for the lost. And really where this puts us right off the bat is at the Gospel. Because Paul has that heart. He has that passion. He has that compassion because of the Gospel. 
It's because of his internalization and his preoccupation with the words of David in Psalm 86 where he says, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made, they shall come and they shall worship you before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and wondrous, and you alone are God. Paul knew that. He was jealous for that. And he wondered again at that undeserving state that we vastly underestimate, that we are loved far more than we deserve. That while we were still dead in our sins, He made us alive. And so Paul walks into this city with this Gospel-saturated heart burning for the glory of God, burning for the lost and the condition of the people that he sees around them. And he has this mind that is discerning everything he sees. And we talked a bit this summer as we studied the book of Proverbs, we talked about the discipline of discernment, about the Christian's call to be a discerning people. We don't just consume culture around us. We critique culture. We hold everything up to the light of God's Word just like they hold up those $100 bills to see the band of authenticity. We hold everything up. Say, what does God think about this? Paul walked into the city with his eyes fixed on Jesus and the beauty of the architecture and whatever else might have caught his eye in this city was overwhelmed by the distraction of the fundamental problem of this city. It's a city full of rebels and idol worshipers. And they needed to know God. Brothers and sisters, I've been convicted again this week about how uncompassionate I am. About how not caring I can be about how I cannot have these categories in my head that informs how I view people, how I interact with people. And it's a challenge for all of us. Are we numb? Are we calloused to all the rebellion, all the mockery of God that exists in our world? Or do our hearts burn for concern for God's glory and for the ultimate destiny of man? Oh, we can have confidence. This is our Father's world. You don't have to play defense. You're a child of the King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And He will make all things right. And so believe the Gospel and let it change you. Believe the fate of those who die without Jesus and let that shape you. Pray. Pray for eyes to see the rebellion and for hearts to hurt for the lost. Pray for the grace to be compassionately passionate. It's the first simple point I think that Paul shows us as he walks into this city. But there's another, and it's this strive to be generously strategic. Strive to be generously strategic. 
You see, a heart moved with passion for the Lord and passion for His glory, a burning sense of defending His honor, doesn't necessarily walk into a city and start yelling on the street corners and condemning people to hell. That's not necessarily the best tact. Paul is provoked, Luke says. It's quite a word. He is angry. He is upset. He is burning. And yet, that is tempered. That provocation is tempered by his compassion and and pity and, and maybe even respect for those who are lost. They're desperately searching for truth and they can't find it. And Paul recognizes not only the need, but he thinks, he strategizes about how to respond. And and while he begins in the synagogue and moves to the marketplace, I want to focus on where he eventually ends up. The Areopagus, this, this place, this council of influential thinkers, movers and shakers, we might say, in the city of Athens. And notice as he gets in front of these men, He doesn't just thump them with the Bible. He doesn't just beat them over the head with God's Word. No, he's what I would call generously strategic. I mentioned this briefly last week, but one of the first things I want to notice that he does is that he focuses on their lack of confidence. He focuses on their own ignorance of the world. I mean, they're trying to figure things out. They just don't know the answers. And so he comes in, he says, I perceive, I look around, I've been around your city for a day now, and I perceive that you guys, you guys are religious people. And I just happen to notice one altar in particular, which I found interesting. It says, to the unknown God. Here we are in a city of thousands upon thousands of gods, littering the landscape. And yet these people, as if to to sort of hedge their bets, right, cover all the bases, throw one up for the unknown God. Because if some God shows up that we don't know, hey, this, this is yours. You were the unknown, we just didn't know your name, but we got something for you. These people are lost. They're clueless. And that launches, that that one statement of Paul noticing the statue launches him into this speech. We're going to get to that speech in a minute, but but I just want to stop there and, and think about our culture in comparison with Athens. I mean, our culture is just as pluralistic as Paul's was. And as I mentioned last week, our idols, they don't sit uh, on the streets, but they're there. Power and wealth and sex and power and comfort. And yet even with those pursuits, even with someone grabbing a hold of those things, in some ways we might say achieving a significant measure of those things, we still express our emptiness and our confusion about the world that we live in. If you know me, you know that I like music, and I listen to a lot of different kinds of music. And I think I've shared this song with you before. It's such a powerful, and I think pointed song in our culture. 
One of the artists that I enjoy is a guy named John Mayer. And he wrote a song a couple years ago, several years ago now, on one of his albums called New Deep. And it's such a striking cultural commentary on his generation, 30-somethings, and how they view things. He says, I'm so alive, I'm so enlightened, I can barely survive a night in my head. But I've got a plan. I'm going to find out just how boring I am and have a good time. Because ever since I've tried, trying not to find every little meaning in my life, it's been fine. I've been cool with my new golden rule. Numb is the new deep. I'm done with the old me. And talk is the same cheap it's been. Is there a God? Why? Why is He waiting? Don't you think of it odd when He knows my address? And look at the stars. Don't they remind you of just how feeble we are? Well, they used to, I guess. Stop trying to figure it out. Deep will only bring you down. You know, I used to be the back porch poet with my book of rhymes, always open, knowing all the time I'm probably never going to find the perfect rhyme for heavier things. Wow. That's one of the preachers of our culture. That's one of the preachers to the 30s and 20s and teens of our generation. Heavier things. But numb is the new deep. See, Paul knows that the people of Athens long for heavier things. And he knows the heaviest of things. And he knows that they know him as well. Psalm 19, Romans 1. The clues of God, as Tim Keller calls them in his book, that book that many of you are studying. The clues of God are everywhere. Nature and beauty and reason, they all point to something longed for but not known. And they are all opportunities for us to be strategic. To point towards the Gospel. Paul in his context says, this God that you don't know, I know. And He's bigger and He's better than you had ever hoped. And he goes through these three, what I would call burnings of the human heart. I mean, if we were going to sum up his speech, his sermon, three burnings. The burning to know where we came from. The burning to know what we're here for. And the burning to know where's this all going to end. I mean, aren't those the burning questions of our culture? And he begins with origins. And he says, you want to know where you came from? The God that I speak of is outside of this created order. And that statement was in direct contrast to the Stoics that he was speaking to without going deep into their philosophy. He says, the God I proclaim to you doesn't. He can't live in these structures that you've erected for Him. And maybe he even went off on a little tangent to say that that idolatry at its heart, if he didn't do it, I'm going to do it right now, that idolatry at its heart is the attempt to, to localize God. To contain and limit and control God. 
And you see, to those who are proud and and self-sufficient, a God who is outside of us, it's not good news, it's scary. But to those who are humble and dependent, oh, that is good news. That is one worth hearing about. And he says, this God created all that you see, and he gives you breath. And that's where you came from. And then he moves into meaning. To their question of what are we here for? And he says, a God of such glory really doesn't need you. And you need to know that. That He doesn't need you. But you need Him. You're dependent upon Him. And in fact, you're created for Him. You're created to find Him. To find rest in Him. And to enjoy Him forever. Do you see Him say that? And then he turns to, where is it all headed? Many in that era believed that time was cyclical. just kept going around and around and around. And Paul says, no. Time is linear. It had a beginning, and the end is coming. And if you think about our culture, as one writer that I read this week noted, about our world. We as a people, we are strong on analysis, but weak on meaning and purpose, he writes. Human origins are taught in every classroom, but there is this uncanny silence about human destiny. And so maybe the most, the, the most important thing in these three burning questions of where are you from, what are you here for, is where is this going? And that's what I want to close our time together talking about. But before I go there, as we think about our own proclamation in the world, it's clear that we can't just put our heads in the sand, nor can we just uncritically consume culture. I think Paul shows us here that he looked for and he seized upon longings that he saw in, his, in that culture. Longings expressed in their idolatry, in their religion. But for us, it's our music, it's our art, it's our movies, it's our literature, it's our media. There are so many places where we have a point of contact to be able to speak about eternal things. And that's exactly what Paul does. You see a quote there from a hymn. It's actually a hymn to Zeus that he quotes by the writer Epimenides. That line, in him we move and live and have our being. That's a hymn to Zeus that he quotes. And then he adds this line from the poet Eridus, um, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul makes this point of contact generously strategic for the sake of the Gospel. One last thing I want us to end on, and it's this. Don't be afraid to be unapologetically offensive. Don't be afraid to be unapologetically offensive. Now that needs some explanation for sure. I hate negotiating for a new car or used car, any car at a car dealership. I don't think we have anyone here that sells cars that I would be insulting, but 
When we bought our van several years back, we went through that annoying process that I know so many of you have dealt with. We haggled with this guy back and forth, back and forth. I can't do that. I can't do that. Let me check with my manager. Comes back. Can't do that. Can do this. But eventually, he drew a line in the sand, as of course they do. And what did we do? We walked away. That was too much. Paul knows that as he stands in this court of ideas, these these, among these people who love to have their ears tickled with new things. It's kind of how Luke describes us. He knows that there's going to come a point where he just simply has to draw a line in the sand and trust God. You know, our salesman, he eventually caved in as we drove from the lot and got on the interstate. We got a phone call from him, and we were back with our terms. But Paul is not going to cave in. Paul draws this line in the sand and he is going to leave it there no matter who walks away. He's not selling anything. He's speaking the truth of who God is. You see, this whole thing, some would like to accuse Paul of of just pandering with the Athenians. Over-accommodating their misunderstandings. But Paul is not going to add one more God to the pantheon of gods in Athens. He's gotten into their heads, and now he's going to aim right for their hearts. He's appealed to their limited understanding and expression. And he is clear now in concluding this whole thing with the fact that, to use the computer analogy I've heard, they can't just add these new ideas to their hard drives. This is not just more memory to tuck away for them. This is not a mere update. No, the computer, the Athenian computer, is crashing. And the old files have to be erased. Fundamental presuppositions that these people have held about reality have to be abandoned, and essentially, they have to start over. The ignorance needs to end, he says. Repentance must come. And why? Because the judge is coming. And the judge is coming because of the resurrection. Boy, that's how to kill a party. I mean, Paul kills it right there. Unapologetically offends. See, the exclusive claims of Christ, as we've talked about before, are a stumbling block. They are. And we need to let them be. We don't create any undue stumbling blocks before we get there. But there's no getting around it. A crucified and a risen Jesus proving the power and the authority of God, it just can't be easily swallowed. And yet, people have to deal with that. Everyone that you compassionately talk to, everyone that you strategically aim at, has to deal with the reality of what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with the risen Christ? Amidst all the compassion, amidst all the strategy, don't be afraid. As Paul was not ashamed, don't be afraid to offend. For the Gospel is the power of God to salvation. 
Well, there's no doubt that Paul is a hard act to follow. Luke is not saying, go every one of you and be a Paul. As I said last week, this call to speak, this learning how to speak, is not going to necessarily happen on the grandest of scales. Moms, it's going to happen as you homeschool your kids or as they come home from school and you speak words of truth into their situation and you correct erroneous views that they've picked up. Men, this is going to happen as you go to work and as you interact with your co-workers in the mundane times of life, not in the grandiose speeches before the leadership. But let God use you as you pray for compassion as you strive for strategy, and as you unashamedly, unapologetically offend, if necessary, with the truth of the Gospel. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for Your servant, Paul, who by no means was a perfect man, and yet in this city shows us, gives us a glimpse of what it means to speak the Gospel to a world that doesn't understand, that has very little context. So, Father, I pray that You would take this Word now, that You would impress it upon our hearts, that we might go from this place changed. For Your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.